Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Today we're going to talk about surrendering your wealth. Congratulations. Surrender your wealth. Um, where are you guys going? No. We're going to be talking about money, uh, but maybe not like you would expect when you come to church. So anytime we talk about money, people, you know, I just see shoulders raised and people go, oh, why did I pick this week? I could have been somewhere else. Um, I think you're going to like where we're going. Um, Americans, we have an unhealthy relationship with money, an unhealthy relationship with money. Most unhealthy relationships are uh, compensating for other areas of dysfunction in our life, okay? So take any unhealthy relationship, and usually we're compensating for some other area of lack or some other area of dysfunction, of unhealth. So uh, this is not about anybody. Don't get offended. I lack control in my family, so I meticulously work on my lawn, okay? So if I have an unhealthy relationship with my grass... Maybe it's pointing at something else. Maybe you just like your lawn. I feel unaffirmed in my romantic life, so I start collecting dogs and cats. Like I have an unhealthy area of my life, and so I overcompensate in another area. Uh, I never achieved athletic glory, so I overpressure and live vicariously through my children. I have an unhealthy relationship with my children and their athletic pursuits because I have a a dysfunction somewhere else in my world. Now, not all of these don't apply to anybody necessarily. It may apply to you, may not. But what I'm trying to say is all unhealthy relationships, they have roots in some other place of unhealth in our life. Societally, you want to look, uh, zoom out a little bit, societally, a little less personal. We have an unhealthy relationship with sugar. I don't know if you know about this. Sugar was actually a luxury commodity. So you do a little history lesson. Hundreds of years ago, sugar was luxury. No one had sugar. Sugar was like the queen had sugar, and that's about it. And then uh, through the course of the ugliness of human history, slavery brought sugar to the, the new world. And all of a sudden, what was a luxury good that could be afforded by very few, with the advent of free labor, it became a commodity that everybody could afford. And because there was no cost to the labor, there was obviously a cost, but there was no cost financially, sugar proliferated, and now sugar becomes this giant corporate monolith. So then, it was being sold because we have so much sugar, we sell it to the average American housewife in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. If you're feeling inadequate, life is unexciting, add some sugar. And we start to do things with bad health ideas, bad motives, bad science, and then sugar becomes this thing that starts being sold around the Western world as a way to uh, improve your life, as a way to uh, treat your family, as a way to lose weight. You ever heard of this diet, the add some sugar and lose some weight diet? Go ahead and put up this ad from the 50s, which is less fattening, three teaspoons of pure sugar or an apple. It's called bad science. (laughs) The implication here is if domino sugar had just been around in the Garden of Eden, Eve would never have had to pick that apple. She just would have had three spoonfuls of sugar and we'd be still in paradise. Um, Sugar then continues on its unhealthy relationship, our relationship with it. When the low-fat diet came out, we mistakenly think that fat causes fat. It does not. But fat is calorically dense. 
And so we think, how do we get people to stop eating so much fat? Well, we get low-fat diet. And what do you do when you have a low-fat diet? Well, the, the flavor goes away. So how do you add flavor back? Well, you just add more sugar. And all of a sudden, we have a cultural addiction, massive health problems, and we have an unhealthy relationship with sugar in our culture. Now, is sugar bad? Is sugar evil? No. It's a plant that's grown and refined and then put into things. It's, it's fine. Sugar is not evil, but it's used today in a way that's out of step with the design for sugar in our bodies and our lives. We got turned around, the motives got murky. It was a story of slavery and greed and corporate power in the modern world. And so, so what we've done is we've taken on something and we're just using it in a way that maybe it wasn't designed for. So it is with money, so it is with wealth. So we're going to go to the book of Hebrews in your Bible today. Uh, let me give you some backstory. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish converts, to Jewish followers of Jesus in the early days. It was written before A.D. 70, which uh, was when Jerusalem was sacked, and so you can usually kind of figure out where you are when things were written. So it's pre-the fall of Jerusalem, probably written by Apollos or Barnabas. You can find their names in your New Testament. The main theme of the book of Hebrews is the supremacy of Jesus in all things. Like, he is sufficient in all things, he's enough in all things, and, and the, the writer was trying to get new converts to following Jesus, these Jewish followers of Jesus, to avoid going back to their Jewish customs or to avoid overlaying this new, uh, new covenant with Jesus with Judaizing principles. So like making, trying to make Jesus back into some other form of uh, Jewish religious figurehead. They're holding to old laws that had been superseded or fulfilled. And so, so the writer is trying to break people from the laws that are no longer applicable to their life and let them see that grace abounds, that Jesus is the Messiah, that there is a king to be followed. In his closing challenge to the people, the writer writes this. We'll put it up on the screen for you. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. He says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? I'm going to leave that up for you so you can just soak in that for a minute, because we're going to, we have to unpack it just a little bit. The writer says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, why should I, why should I keep my life free from the love of money? Why should I try to get rid of this discontentment? Well, because, because, and then make some notes here. It's in quotes. You notice it's in quotes. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. This is a quote from Deuteronomy 31. Moses is about to uh, leave the people of Israel as they are about to enter the promised land. And he's telling them to be strong and courageous as they enter the promised land, that, that he's not going to go in with them. In light of the wandering in the wilderness, they're going to need to be strong and courageous. They need to remember that God will never leave them nor forsake them. Talk about being vulnerable or insecure. Forty years in the wilderness might do it to you. He's seen them abandon God. Moses will see them whine and complain and build a golden calf. God won't leave you or forsake you. The writer of Hebrews harkens back to Moses, harkens back to the Mosaic world, and he repurposes these words in light of this idea that they should push back on the love of money. He then quotes in the second part, the Lord is my helper. He quotes Psalm 118, which is attributed to David, who had faced every sort of trial. David faced Saul and the Philistines and the Malachites. David faced his people trying to kill him, enemies trying to kill him, giants trying to kill him. David faced just about everything. And, and what is David's refrain in Psalm 118? 
Lord is my helper. I won't be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? I've faced every threat I know, every threat anyone can imagine. Who should I fear if God is on my side? God won't leave you. God will sustain you. God is on your side. You have nothing to fear. So now, with that context, let's zoom out a little bit and see what's happening. We're talking about money today, right? Is money bad? No. Money is like sugar. It's neutral. Sugar glucose is essential for your body. You need it. Money is neutral. Civilization, as long as you can go back, archaeological digs go back, there's always some sort of something to trade. There's always a currency so that I can have some of your grain and you can have some of my rocks or you can have some. People always have a currency to trade. It's, it's just a neutral It's a way that society organizes itself. But misusing it creates harm, doesn't it? Misusing it, creating it, and using it in a way it wasn't designed to be used, a way that it wasn't ordered to be used, misusing it, overcompensating, overusing it, creates unhealth. Overconsumption and greed are obvious and unsatisfying. We don't have to, like, go into, don't be greedy, don't overconsume. Like, you know when you bought that thing you didn't need to buy, and you know that you were like, okay, I really didn't need that. And that, that creates a little shame cycle. We've got to break free from that. That's not what this is about. You know when that new pair of shoes wasn't necessary. You know when that side hustle for a little bit more money is maybe more than your family can handle. You know that you didn't need a new car or a new hat or a new refrigerator or a new pocket knife or a new spouse. Or a new, you know, you know. <laughs> you know when you don't need it, but you get a little greedy. You get a little, you know, maybe that would fill something in me. And then you know because you get it. It didn't fill anything, did it? Pretty soon you're unsatisfied and you're back on that treadmill. No lasting contentment there. So what causes the love of money? Because he says, be careful of the love of money. Try to avoid this discontentment that comes with life. Where are those two things connected? What drives us to greed? What pushes us to obsess over wealth? What makes us chase dollars and what they provide instead of Jesus when he provides? The scripture would point that we have an unhealthy relationship with money because we are profoundly insecure. This is going to be hard for us to hear. If you got pride like I got pride, you don't want to be told you are insecure. He says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's a response to insecurity. Are you coming back? Are you sure? Are you leaving? Where are you going? When will you be back? That's insecurity speaking. Some of you are young parents. You drop your kids off over here in the nursery in the toddler room. You drop your kids off, and then it's like fleeing a, a crime. It's like a bank heist or something where you leave your kids. You, as soon as they turn around, you're just smoke. You're gone. Because if they see you walk out, what happens? They start to whimper, and the lip goes, and then you see it, and you're like, oh, gosh, here we go. And then the kid cries. Why are they crying? Well, where's my parent going? Who are you leaving me with? These people? Lord of the flies, there's just children everywhere. I don't want to be here. <laughs> or the first time you have a babysitter watch your child, some poor 14-year-old walks into your house, and you just hand them a child and run as fast as possible. We'll be back. You don't even call and ask for a while because you know the kid cried for the first 45 minutes. Why do they freak out on the babysitter? Why do kids cry when you drop them off in the, the baby room? Why? They're insecure. You are their security, right? They long to be with you. You are their comfort. You are their security. And so when the parent is absent, it creates a profound insecurity in a child. And this insecurity creates fear, and then fear creates bad behaviors, and now we've got ourselves a cycle. Sometimes I think we need more of different things in our sermons. Our sermons get a little dry. 
I'm talking about money, you're going, oh, this is getting, getting rough, it's getting heavy. So we're going to do, I'm going to call this a musical interlude. <laughs> because we're talking about kids and insecurity, and this is so pervasive in our society, this idea that do, I mean, like, think about this. As adults, you go, but kids don't really, like, they think I'm, they know I'm coming back, right? They, like, when you drop your kid off, they don't know you're coming back. Their worldview is, you may have just left me forever. This is such a problem that uh, I grew up with Mr. Rogers. Anybody Mr. Rogers? Children? Children Mr. Rogers? It was weird to grow up with Mr. Rogers because he kept getting older. Like, it wasn't reruns. It was like, he's getting brown-haired Mr. Rogers, getting white-haired. It was a thing. So then Mr. Rogers was no longer a thing, but they created an animated version of this, and it's Daniel Tiger. So one of the tigers from the puppet land became part of the, okay, so Daniel Tiger, anybody parents of Daniel Tiger kids or any Daniel Tiger kids in the room? Yeah, we got some Daniel. I'm sorry what I'm about to do to you, but the next 73 seconds, I'm going to get a song stuck in your head. It may never leave. Go ahead and play the video. Miss Elena, your mommy will come back and get you. Dad always says, grown-ups come back. Really? Really, really. Dad always says, even when they go away, grown-ups come back. Really? It's true. What about when mom drops me off at school? At the end of the day, she'll come and pick you up too. Grown-ups come back. Grown-ups come back to you. Grown-ups come back, they do. Grown-ups come back. What about when mom and dad go out on a date? They'll kiss you goodnight and they'll be there when you wake. Grown-ups come back. Grown-ups come back to you. Grown-ups come back, they do. Grown-ups come back. Grown-ups come back. Don't you feel better? I kind of want to give it like five minutes of silence and then just start singing it and you'll all, like you just, it's in there forever. You'll never lose it. Why do we need a song like this for our children? Because we're profoundly insecure creatures. And from our smallest until we get, I mean, it doesn't go away. We just start compensating with new things. We react and respond in new ways. As children, we need to be told, no, 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 no your parents will come back. And then the older we get, those things morph into new and interesting and more complicated responses to our general inadequacy, our general insecurity. Stick with kids for a minute. Anybody ever known a child that's afraid of the dark? Just show you. Anybody, child afraid of the dark? Anybody ever cried? Kids afraid of the dark? Something in the closet, something under the bed. Are kids afraid of the dark? No. There's never been a child afraid of the dark. Kids are afraid of the dark if you're not in the room. Because the same kid that's afraid of the dark can crawl into your bed between mom and dad and can crawl into your bed, snuggle up next to mom. The same kid that's afraid of the dark in their room is totally comfortable in the dark in your room. Why? Because proximity to the parent changes everything. The insecurity is not about light and dark. The insecurity is about alone versus with a protector. And it's a profound shift that happens 
It's not an issue of illumination. It's an issue of security and protection. So if we apply this same childlike concept to our own adult uh, relationship with money, it gets interesting. Like you don't need more money. It's not an issue of dollars. It's an issue of security. You're insecure, and you've been taught to spend your way to greater security. So I need more retirement that will secure my waning years. I need more house that will secure. I need a better neighborhood. I need better schools. I need a nicer car. I need a new toaster, whatever, however big or small you think it is. When we buy our way into things we don't need, we think we need them. We do need them, but we don't need them. We need security, and that's our proxy for the moment, but it doesn't satisfy. My kids were asking why we have uh, the waffle maker we have. Dad, get a new waffle maker. Like, this one works really well. And it used to be when we said we got that for our wedding, that was like, it's still kind of nice. And now it's like, you're old, Dad. You got that, like, in a different millennium. Maybe get a new waffle maker. And I'm like, maybe try to break this one because we're never getting a new waffle maker. I'm sorry. But what is it in me that would want a new waffle maker? Because I want something new and I want something fresh and I want to feel like I'm young again. And I want, like, who knows the weird things we project onto the stuff we buy? We want security. Here's the truth. You were designed by God for God. That's the truth. You were designed, designed by God for God. He alone is your security. So to evidence this, we're going to go from Hebrews. We're going to jump into a story in the book of Mark in honor of Mark. Good job, Mark. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. We'll put it on the screen. You know this story. You've heard this story. Let's read it together. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? We're talking about money today. That has nothing to do with money, right? Why? Because what is money about in our world? What is our unhealthy relationship about money about? It's about insecurity and fear. This is a profound story of insecurity and fear. There's this fleet of boats crossing the Sea of Galilee. It's a shallow lake by, the, you know, big lake standards, 200 feet at its deepest point. On a clear day, on any shoreline in the Sea of Galilee, you can see to every other point on the shoreline. That's how big it is. You've got ponds in your backyard that you're like, I can kind of do that. 680 feet below sea level. So it's like, think of the Sea of Galilee as a bowl surrounded by uh, hills. There's, there's a mountain that's 2,000 feet up from the the Sea of Galilee, just off the coast. And what happens is on the Sea of Galilee, you have these these atmospheric conditions that begin to collide. And so the warm, humid, tropical air of the the area surrounding the Sea of Galilee, like kind of right in with it, that mixes with this cold, dry air that's coming off these kind of mountain peaks near it. And when that mixes, when you have cold and hot, when you have wet and dry, when you have atmospheric conditions mixed, that's what creates storms. And the more diverse those two sources, the more violent the storm, okay? And so this is a known phenomenon. It happens there all the time. It's not a rare thing. It's because of the geography of the place that you get the types of storms you get. 
I'll be going there in July, I'm in January. This is my, uh, what is this? This is soliciting. I'm inviting you. We have like 25 people from the church that are going to be there in January. If you want to go, you want to be on a boat on the Sea of Galilee and see this for yourselves, um, we can be bailing water out. We'll do it all together. Uh, we'll go in January. If you want to go, come see me. But what about the boat? Why does this matter? Okay, let's put a slide up. We have a boat here. He's asleep on a cushion. The, the, on the left here is a boat that has been unearthed. It was found like in a, like a sand. It got dredged, and they found this thing, and it's basically this complete first-century Galilean boat. And it tells them, it kind of confirmed a lot of the things they thought archaeologically about what the boats were like, the fishing vessels in that time. And so on the right, you see kind of what it would have looked like fully built on the water. You can see at the very bottom of that, if you have eagle eyes, that uh, the size of the boat is something between like a big delivery truck and a school bus. This is the size of the boat they were on. A 27 and a half foot boat, seven feet wide, five feet deep. It's basically the size uh, of a moving truck. We moved here, we had a 26 foot trailer that moved all of our stuff here seven years ago from Texas. That's how much uh, space we needed for everything we owned and that's about what they have there. So is, it, is a 27 foot boat big? Not really, but is it big enough to get a few people on? Yeah, okay. So they're on this floating moving truck and assuming maybe they'd split up on different boats, so a few disciples, it says there was many boats going across, so maybe a few got on this boat and a few got on that one, but let's say we have five or six disciples, who, some of whom are expert fishermen, are on a boat with Jesus on the right there. The stern, this part in the very back closest to you, with that little hook on it kind of going away from you, that's the stern. It's the back of the boat. So when we hear this story, we think interesting things. We think he's like, well, one, he's right there the whole time. When they go to find him, they didn't have to go anywhere. He's right there. And yet we have this weird thing. The storm hits and insecurity strikes and the fear begins to replace joy. Before we even go about where he is on the stern, when you're reading your New Testament, sometimes you pick up in a passage, sometimes a devotional or a, some, some other thing prompts you to get in and jump into a reading. My favorite thing to do when you're reading your Bible is just go to the passage before just go, where does this come from? Where is this coming out of? What just happened? Well, what just happened when we picked up, he's getting into the boat to go across the sea. But what just happened, he'd been teaching. He'd been teaching to such a large crowd that he was already in a boat because he needed more space to have the people be able to hear him. And what he'd been teaching about was this mustard seed concept, this tiny little dot of a mustard seed, that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's tiny, but you'll see it grows big. The faith you need, you just need a mustard seed. You just need a tiny bit, but wait, if you just had that, you'll see. Jesus is teaching about this mustard seed sort of faith, and out of that, he gets on the boat, and halfway across the lake, the storm strikes. So he says, why are you so afraid? They come to wake him up, and he says, why are you so afraid? What is he asking? Why are you so insecure? It's like they forgot who was in the boat. Grown-ups come back. Oh, sorry. That's all you got to say, see? It worked. Jesus is asking, why are you so insecure? What's your problem? Like the child crying in the dark, one room over, forgets that their parent is right there. Like the Christian who feels a little bit alone, a little bit vulnerable, a little insecure. If I just buy one more thing, if I just make a little bit more money, if we just had a little more, because then I can buy the momentary security I need. Or, or at least I can distract myself from the insecurity. Just for a minute, you forget you're afraid. And Jesus says, no, man, I'm right here. I've been here the whole time. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. I am here. 
you're safe with me. We're forgetful. Like, we think the disciples ran down. Like, whenever I first heard this story, and Jesus is asleep in the stern on a cushion, what do you picture? I picture they have to go below decks to find him, right? Oh, well, they're in a storm, and he's asleep. He must be down below decks, isn't he? Like, they're on some sort of Russian yacht, and they got it, like, send one of the butlers, and they go, and they find him, and he's down there in the luxury sleeping cabinet, and he, they wake him up, and he's groggy, and he goes, what's happening? I can't even believe it. I couldn't hear it. It's so peaceful down here. And then he comes up to the, the deck, and he's like, guys, this is great. It's none of that. He's on a 27-foot boat. He's sleeping in the back of the boat. He's right there. And what do they say? Somebody wake him up. Yeah, he knows. He's aware. And so in, in our insecurity, we, like the disciples, we kind of panic a little bit. Somebody wake him up. Like, is he even with us? Does he even know? Does he even care? Do you, Lord, do you even care that we're perishing? Do, Lord, we're bailing water out and you're asleep. So we run from him. We run. Because he's not responding the way we, we want him to respond. He's not panicking like I'm panicking, so I project my fear onto him. And if he's not afraid, then ah, he must not understand my situation. He doesn't get me. He's not listening. He's not talking to me. He's not answering me. And we begin to turn our backs to the Lord. So we've got to find something else to buy security. And then, I can't believe I thought that. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I bought that. I can't believe I went there. I can't believe I clicked that. And we find ourselves in other areas of distraction and insecurity, and we try to suffice, and we try to to supplant him with other things, and they don't ever satisfy. And now we have a shame cycle, because now, not only did I turn my back from God and I'm doing other things, but now I'm ashamed of the things I was doing. And so I don't want to go face him, because if I have to face him, then he's going to know what I did. And we're in a cycle, aren't we? So which moves us further from him, which creates more insecurity, which just deepens the hole we're digging. So we overcompensate. Pretty soon we develop an unhealthy relationship with something. And for many of us, it's with money, which like sugar would comfort us. And if you don't pay attention and you comfort yourself with anything long enough that is less than the comforter, you can develop an addiction to that comfort. And they're all just angles for control. Maybe today isn't about money for you at all. Maybe you go, no, that's not it, man, but it is this other thing. I get that's it. It's about control. It's knowledge. It's entertainment. It's, it's a relationship. It's control. I need to know. I need to have. I need to feel. I need to be secure. And I'm so insecure, I must control somehow. But it's always short-term relief. It's always a temporary escape. And long-term, every short-term unhealthy choice has long-term unhealthy consequences. child can turn on the lights because they fear the dark, but that, that's not a sustainable solution. You can't live that way the rest of your life. Like disciples, we panic in the storms of life even though the maker of the waves is with us. So today, uh, your invitation is to surrender your wealth. I don't mean that you need to put it in the black boxes. It certainly doesn't need to go in my pocket. challenge is to surrender your reliance on wealth as comfort or security. For some of you, now for some of you, that literally is an invitation to greater generosity. You need to to prove to yourself that that's not the thing that's securing you. So for some of you, that's great. You'll figure out where that needs to go. But for everyone, the challenge to us, identify the places of discontentment in your life. What's the question that your discontentment is asking you? There's a place in my life I'd feel unsatisfied. 
There's a place in my life I feel discontent. There's a place in my life that's unfulfilled. And that, that unfulfillment is asking you a question. It's where are you placing your hope? That's always what it's asking. I'm unfulfilled in my job. Where are you placing your hope? I'm unfulfilled in my relationship. Where are you placing your hope? If you place your hope in anything less than Jesus, it will not satisfy. Where is an unhealthy aspect of your life inviting you into an unhealthy relationship with money or something else? Something far more sinister. The words of the Bible ring true. God will never leave you nor forsake you. God will never leave you nor forsake you. Even when the Lord and the maker of the waves is asleep on the back of the boat, God has never left nor forsaken. God did not leave them or forsake them. God was in control the whole time. So if the Lord is with you, there's nothing left to fear. So as you reckon with the thing that it is that you're chasing for control, the thing that, you, that you're chasing to try to find security in life, as you try to wrestle through that, my prayer for you is you would find security in Christ alone. As you would live a life where you're no longer afraid of the wind or the waves because the master is close at hand. May you live as one who's no longer afraid of the dark because the light of the world has come. He is in you. He is with you. And that's enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you, uh, Lord, you tend to find the places where uh, we are weak and vulnerable. You tend in your word to uh, use a scalpel upon our hearts at times. That we can kind of zoom through life and snooze through life in ways that uh, are easily dismissed, that we get busy enough that we don't take time to, to look in and, and really investigate. Father, my prayer this morning is that we would take that time. We would ask the hard questions of where we feel insecure, of where we're overcompensating, and Lord, where are our unhealthy relationships? Where are we chasing security with anything less than you? Father, the call, pray, is not for people to chase poverty, but to chase you. It's not to chase less stuff, it's to chase you. So God, uh, free us even from the distractions of the false narrative that wants to enter in. Remind us that it isn't the opposite of, of, of chasing wealth, isn't chasing poverty, it's, it's simply you. God, find us as a people that are after your heart, that want to see your face, that want to live our lives in your presence. Father, find us like kids curled up with the Father, curled up with you in perfect security with perfect perfection. God, we love you. We thank you for your presence in this place. We thank you for your blessing upon our lives. We thank you for even the ability to recognize the places we need to grow and change. God, change our hearts. Grow us up that we might be your ambassadors in new and better ways today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.